today on Against the Grain. How does political ideology operate or play out in Cuba? What is ideology anyway? I'm CS. SF State Professor Catherine Gordy discusses her investigation into the meaning of Cuban socialist ideology after the breakup of the Soviet Union, coming right up. This is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. My name is C.S. Song. There is the ideology of socialism in Cuba, and then there is the lived experience, people's lived experience in that country. What's the relationship between the two? Is ideology a fixed static phenomenon imposed on society by political elites, or is it a living, changing thing? practiced and perhaps even produced by people in every sector of society? And what principles could Cuban socialist ideology be said to advance or promote? These are some of the questions addressed in Catherine Gordy's book, Living Ideology in Cuba, Socialism in Principle and Practice. Catherine Gordy is professor of political science at San Francisco State University. Her research and teaching interests include comparative political theory, with a focus on Latin American and Caribbean political thought, critical theory, and theories of history and ideology. In Living Ideology in Cuba, Kate also considers Fidel Castro's open espousal of Marxism-Leninism several years after the Cuban Revolution of 1959. When Kate and I connected recently, I asked whether what she discovered in 1996 during her first visit to Cuba was the impetus for writing this book. Absolutely. I went to graduate school with the intention of doing a more traditional political theory dissertation, more traditional political theory work on European thinkers, textual exegesis. And Cuba for me, I knew about Cuba and I had as a, an important place for the left. I knew about its history. I actually remember writing a paper <laughs> on, I think, Cuban independence in high school. So I knew about Cuba and I was interested in it, but I was also not planning to do a dissertation focused on a place more kind of comparative politics type of dissertation. I was planning to do a more traditional political theory dissertation, textual exegesis, picking a theorist or two. And I was also a little bit wary of the romanticization of Cuba by people on the left. Now, by the time I was involved in solidarity stuff, which was in high school, the new kind of promised land or the place that a lot of uh, folks on the left, and I realize I'm generalizing quite a bit when I'm talking about folks on the left, but for a lot of people um, involved in solidarity, Nicaragua was the place that people looked to as a positive example of a kind of socialist experiment, although one very different from the Cuban. And so I went to Cuba because my advisor at the time had gotten some money to take me and two other graduate students to go to the Latin American Film Festival. And so while I rolled my eyes at the leftist romanticization, as a leftist, I was, I am a leftist, but um, I was suspicious or or aware of this romanticizing of of Cuba. Hey, it was an offer to go. And so I went. And as I talk about in the book, even though I was wary of this idealization, in many ways, I was intrigued or struck or or moved by being there. And, 
and the things about Cuba that make it Cuba. But also, it was fascinating to see the ways and hear people talking in what were very sophisticated ways about fundamental political questions, questions I was interested in as a political theorist. And so that suddenly I thought, huh, but it really was, being there was very uh, exciting in terms of on the ground discussions and seeing all of these questions I had long been interested in as someone interested in, in Marxist theory, as someone interested in political economy, as someone interested in critical theory, as someone is interested in ideology, and all of these questions were coming alive in daily life and in conversations. Ideology, I mean, the word is in the title of your book, Living Ideology in Cuba. So I think it's important to begin with a definition of, of ideology. What, what in your mind is ideology? I define it in the book fairly simply as a framework that helps us to make sense of our lives, of, of our material conditions and our, the way that we live on a daily basis. So frameworks that make some things visible and make things knowable and explainable. And it's not necessarily exhaustive. In other words, it falls short. The ideology as a framework may fall short in terms of its explanatory power um, and in terms of its ability to not just make sense of the world around you, but also in terms of um, being realized. <laughs> Uh, in the world around you. Uh, but it has to have some kind of correspondence in terms of both speaking to your lived experience, the, the world around you, and also perhaps suggesting the way in which the world falls short of the ideology, but also the way that the ideology falls short in terms of explaining what is. Is it your opinion that every political system has an ideology? I'm hesitant to make super broad generalizations based on places I don't know that well, but yes, yes, I think that I, I, I think that any successful political system, and by successful I simply mean staying in power, not and not giving any kind of qualitative description beyond staying in power, kind of Machiavellian, you know, attaining and maintaining power um has to have something beyond coercion to keep it in place and i think of that other element as being an ideology that is often not necessarily recognized all the time as ideology and as instead part of, and this is Gramsci, Gramsci's contribution, becomes part of everyday language, common sense. And so it's not always um, identifiable or doesn't announce itself as ideology necessarily. Some people, many people would argue that ideology is, is dogma. It is sort of the prevailing dogma advanced by, by ruling elites. What's your take on that? Again, it, de it depends on what, what country you're talking about. But I would say that something that is distinct about Cuba, and I talk about this in the book, is that ideology is identified and announced and marked everywhere, which can be oppressive. I, I don't want to undervalue or trivialize the way in which that can be oppressive. But it also means that it's very clear where it is. And once you make it very clear, you in some ways have to be accountable for it. You have to live by it. And again, there's certain definitely contradictions in that in, in Cuba in terms of elites who don't, who, who officials who don't necessarily live 
socialism in the same way as a lot of people in Cuba do. But I think that's a real misconception that my book is trying to address, that ideology is dogma and that ideology is dangerous and oppressive and keeps people from seeing what's really going on. Whereas I think ideology is one, as I said before, it's, it's a framework that allows us to understand the world around us, but it also allows for a certain kind of accountability that not announcing it does not. So I think ideology can become dogmatic, but it is not in and of itself dogmatic. And in fact, can you be used to fight dogma and that an ideology that becomes stagnant and fixed and purely abstract is dogma, but a successful ideology can't be dogma. It's not dogma. That's Catherine Gordy. She's professor of political science at San Francisco State University. We are talking about her book, Living Ideology in Cuba, Socialism in Principle and Practice. I'm C.S. Song, and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. Ideology in Cuba is everywhere, you assert, and you identify three spheres of Cuban political thought political doctrine, which is sort of the official sphere, political theory, the academic sphere, and daily practice or the popular sphere. Why is it important to distinguish between these three spheres? And are you saying then that ideology sort of permeates each one of these? So first, I want to qualify that I don't think these spheres are exhaustive. And I think you could talk about other spheres in Cuban society, which may intersect with these, or may be part of these, or maybe something else. So I think you could talk about the sphere of labor. You could talk about the sphere of domesticity. I think you could talk about a queer sphere. I think that this model I have is in some ways flexible, and there would be other ways to get to this. But the reason I talk about spheres is as an alternative to the way that people usually talk about not just Cuba, but societies in general, but especially socialist countries that are in some way uh, in transition, in crisis, however you want to describe. That's, of course, a big question in Cuba, uh, although I think at this point there's no doubt that there's a moment of crisis, but that's my book was not written in 2021. And so people often talk about most societies in terms of the state civil society relationship with ideology often being either isolated to the sphere of the state in the form of dogma and this is often when people talk about socialist countries or non-liberal democracies even though i would say that there's certainly an official ideology to all to liberal democracies right i mean it's in the name liberalism there it is um, but when when people talk about socialist systems, and this came about especially uh, in all the scholarship on Eastern Europe and the transitions there, uh, where people talked about state civil society and either ideology is in the is in the state in the form of dogma, and then there is the experience of the people sort of freely expressed against this dogma. And experience speaks for itself. It's not filtered through ideology, which is uh, mystifying and, and includes the facts. Or that ideology, um, if there is in fact an ideology that's a legitimate ideology, it exists in the sphere of civil society because that is the sphere in which uh, people are freely expressing their ideas, the sphere of opinion. And so I really wanted to get away from that framework for understanding what was happening in Cuba of the state civil society framework, because I didn't think it really captured what I was observing. And it tended to either fetishize opposition or fetishize experience or sustain these very stark divisions between both 
institutions, but also in terms of how people talked within the state and civil society. In other words, that they didn't operate so easily within one or the other. And so the spheres suggested something a little bit more permeable and also suggested that on the one hand, there was a shared ideology, a hegemonic, and again, there's plenty of other, there's other ideologies in Cuba that compete with Cuban socialist ideology. It's not the only one by any stretch, um, but that there was a kind of a, a, an ideology that operated, but that the way that you thought about it and the way you talked about it depended on where you were situated within these different spheres. So if you were an academic, you had particular kinds of considerations. And if you were a government official, you, other, you had other kinds of considerations when you were thinking about Cuban socialist ideology. Or if you were somebody talking on a street corner or with your friends about it, there were a different set of constraints and a different set of um, concerns, but also that sometimes these people the person um, talking with uh, her friends on the street corner might also be a government official or might also be an academic. And so that there was also a kind of traveling of people between these spheres. Right. So ideology is being considered, being discussed, negotiated in each of these three spheres, including uh, daily practice, daily life, as you said. I mean, you write that Cuban thinking about the meaning of socialism is not just the practice of politicians or academics, it is an everyday practice. And the terms of ideology, the language you write, involves principles. You find principles to be crucial, to be significant to be necessary to ideology. Um, can you talk a little about that? And I'm also curious what specific principles you see as integral to specifically Cuban socialist ideology. Uh, yeah, so I, again, didn't come to this framework that I have for talking about Cuban socialist ideology specifically sort of a priori. In other words, I didn't have some f understanding of ideology. I mean, I had studied it, but I didn't have one particular conceptualization of ideology that I then imposed upon my study of Cuba. And rather, I was there and suddenly realized, oh, if I'm going to talk about how the Cuban government is justifying these market interventions and these various measures taken to address the special period or the fallout, um, then I need to understand what Cuban socialist ideology is. And I found that when I started talking to people and asking them, what is it? It was much more helpful to use the term principles. And this was partly because I was told and I was there at a very sensitive time in Cuban history. Again, uh, you had the collapse of the Soviet trading bloc. Cuba goes into economic freefall, entering what is known <laughs> as the special period in times of peace. Times of peace meaning that it was a very difficult situation, warlike, wartime conditions, but there was no actual war. And so there was great uh, material scarcity and uh, hardship across the island um, and a crisis of legitimacy and a crisis of the system. And the Cuban leadership was really sort of grasping around, trying to figure out what they were going to say and and what was Cuban socialist ideology and it so that term ideology itself was a, a little bit touchy and so I was told by mostly academics but some officials I spoke with that I should not use that term ideology because people would shut down 
either because they didn't want to speak officially on what it was or because it was a sensitive issue. And then when I began thinking about, well, how, how else do I talk about this? I found that if I looked at political speeches, both historical all the way back to the 19th century, but up to the present and slogans, uh, even on the street, I noticed that the term principle often appeared as a way to talk about ideology. And it was also a way that, that people talked about it that I spoke to. And so then that made me think about, well, what are the advantages of this, this term principle, which I've been told to use in a sense, interestingly, to get past the censors, which suggests that, that it was less accurate or something, right? Uh, but in fact, this term that I start to use to get past the censors, and I might also add that there were, of course, the considerations of the US uh, government in terms of getting permission to study in Cuba, but um, that this term that, that at first appeared to be kind of a, a substitute for a more accurate term turned out to be a more accurate term in terms of the language that was actually used to talk about what was in a sense ideology. Um, and it also allowed me to talk about or think about ideology not as some coherent whole but as made up of parts uh, and also because principle suggests and is connected to this idea of living ideology you live it it's a principle it's not just something that you believe you aspire to or you or you have a value these are my value but it's a principle you live by it it's something that you stand by and live by and live I'm CS. This is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. Catherine Gordy joins me, G-O-R-D-Y. She teaches political science at San Francisco State University. She's written widely on Cuba, ideology, and Latin American political thought, and we are talking about her book, Living Ideology in Cuba, Socialism in Principle and Practice. It's published by the University of Michigan Press. Right, and I think I interrupted you because you were about to talk about the principles that were key that stood out to you as defining, to some degree, Cuban socialist ideology. I choose, I chose three. Socioeconomic equality, unified leadership, inclusive nationalism. I think as with spheres, it might be possible to consider others, but, but I chose socioeconomic equality, unified leadership and inclusive nationalism. Um, and this again is because it is what I found uh, was important when I listened to people talk about the Cuban system and what Cuba was about and what socialism was about. What is inclusive nationalism? So inclusive nationalism means that you define the nation on the basis of what you truly have in common. So it is not, um, there are certainly nationalisms that are exclusive. They're about defining us against them and excluding certain groups from the nation, uh, usually different racial groups or immigrants. Um, and that I would say is a kind of exclusive nationalism versus an inclusive nationalism, which is about trying to find something that makes Cuba Cuba or Cubanness that is as inclusive as possible, that brings in as many people as possible into the nation and brings in everyone. Um, now, one could say that that's impossible and that any kind of nationalism is necessarily excludes those who are not part of the nation, for instance. But inclusive nationalism, insofar as it is still about the nation, in my definition, is a nationalism that is, well, it's two things, as I said before, on on a, a definition of the nation that includes as many, all the people of the nation, but also 
second to that, and in some ways connected to socioeconomic equality, a nationalism that is not purely abstract. So as I say in the book, it's not that we are equal because we are all Cuban, right? This abstract identity, and this is Marx talks about this and on the Jewish question, this abstract identity of being Cuban, right? But that we are Cuban because we all have the same lived experience or because we all have something in common in in reality, in daily life, in, in the conditions of our lives. The principle of unified leadership that you mentioned, was that a principle held on to more strongly by political elites, the political leadership in Cuba, and less so by people leading their everyday lives, given the diversity of opinions among ordinary Cubans? Um, yeah. One, I think it, it's a term that goes all the way back to the 19th century, that this concern with uni unity and unified leadership is a concern that is not specific to Cuban socialist ideology. And I think it's important to, to emphasize that because of course we tend to associate anything that has a whiff of, of authoritarianism or it seems authoritarian with Cuban socialist ideology, whereas this concern with unified leadership goes far back to uh, the 19th century and uh, struggles against imperialism and the wars of independence, and but also, of course, was a topic of concern and debate amongst people worried that uh, too much power was concentrated in various military officials. But then I would say in terms of who, who talks about it now, and is it a principle that is more firmly embraced by officials than other people in Cuba, Yes, absolutely. And that's one example of the kind of different ordering of the principles that, that Cuban officials will say, well, uh, you know, unified leadership is a precondition for these other principles versus other spheres that might say, I'm a little worried that privileging unified leadership actually comes at the cost of socioeconomic equality or inclusive nationalism. And so, yes. That said, of course, and, and I also want to say that my book does not aim to provide an exhaustive account of what Cubans think. I wouldn't ever presume to be able to present that, both because it's impossible, because it's so diverse, but also because I didn't go out and do surveys and get numbers, and I didn't uh, do even a... I guess, a traditional ethnography. A lot of the conversations I have don't necessarily appear in the book. I, spent, I was there for a long time, but a lot of it doesn't actually go into the book in terms of account of who I was speaking to. But I would say that even amongst other these other spheres, there's some people who also really find that important um, to some degree or another and others who, who are skeptical of it, but that those who espouse socialism to one degree or another have to kind of understand or give it some weight in light of Cuba's geopolitical position in the world. One absolutely key seminal moment in the history of Cuban socialism was when Fidel Castro, who took power in 1959 after the Cuban dictator Fulgencio Batista was overthrown in 1959, at the very beginning of 1959, declared, Castro declared in 1962 that he was a Marxist-Leninist. And he had not declared that when he was struggling for the overthrow of Batista in the 1950s. He did not declare that when he and his allies, his colleagues, took power in 1959. So many, as you indicate in this book, many 
tried to understand what he was doing, what he really meant when he decided to openly espouse Marxism-Leninism. Many thought that it was driven by his desire to consolidate power by pleasing the Soviets. So going back to what you were saying earlier about ideology versus strategy, this sort of uh, theme you hit on in your book about opportunism being maybe one reason why people espouse a certain ideology. This was a way, a pragmatic way. It was it, it was driven by practical considerations as opposed to perhaps him, Castro, really being or agreeing with the Marxist-Leninist line. What do you make of, of that argument that Castro's espousal of Marxism was a kind of opportunism? There's so many different ways to approach that question. And of course, many texts have gone back to kind of mine pre-1959 Fidel Castro's actions and words to see whether there is any consistency between those actions and words and his later espousal of Marxism-Leninism. But of course, Castro himself acknowledges that while he was reading Marx and his own, you know, political ideology and goals was a, a progressive one, he was still influenced by his petite bourgeois upbringing and was not fully Marxist. So he himself acknowledges that there's a shift. Now, that still doesn't get to the question, which is in some ways not even knowing what Fidel Castro really thought and believed is really in some ways irrelevant because it ignores one, I mean, it ignores several things. It ignores that we adopt ideologies because they're useful to us some way, right? And that doesn't make the ideology any less valuable or important. And it also ignores that you can't, Fidel Castro couldn't have just alone decided to change his beliefs and, and impose them single-handedly on everyone else in the country. Even as, of course, he resorted to various methods of repression, increasing repression to um, silence dissent. But that, again, ignores that simultaneous to this repression were policies, all sorts of economic, social policies, and institutions set up that produced a different kind of subject in Cuba, a revolutionary subject, a socialist subject, who would find Marxism-Leninism appealing. The other thing I would say is that I think on some level, again, why does it matter whether it was done to appease the Soviets even? Uh, on the one hand, that again would ignore popular support that was not just from repression, but also by providing material conditions that would produce socialist subjects or make socialism more appealing to people. But also that Cuba was a small country kind of caught between two global superpowers. There's this fabulous quote from uh, Che Guevara, it's not my book, it's in another article I have on strategies of anti-imperialism in, in Viewpoint magazine, where he says, People say that, you know, the Soviets are just using us. Um, and I say, I don't care. I don't care whether the Soviets are just using us. I want to, what I care about is whether it's helpful to us. Uh, and so I think also this idea that somehow or another choosing sides was a compromise or selling out is is unrealistic in light of uh, geopolitical conditions at the time. Although it also does not recognize all of the ways in which Cuba throughout, especially the 1960s, did not follow Soviet directives. 
uh, not both domestically, as evidenced by the great debate about the best way to move towards socialism, uh, with Soviet models of planning being initially rejected, but also in terms of Cuban foreign policy uh, and its support of third world liberation movements. That's the voice of Catherine Gordy. It's Catherine with a K and then G-O-R-D-Y. She's professor of political science at San Francisco State University. Her research and teaching interests include comparative political theory with a focus on Latin American and Caribbean political thought, critical theory and theories of history and ideology. We are talking about her book, Living Ideology in Cuba, Socialism in Principle and Practice. And this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I'm C.S. Song. There is an argument you bring up and address in your book, this argument that socialism was a betrayal of Cuban revolutionary history. You uh, call it the revolution betrayed thesis. And to address it, to flesh it out, to counter it in some ways, you talk about in chapter one of your book the intellectual milieu of 19th century Cuba, the people who were fighting for Cuban independence from Spain, who were fighting for the abolition of slavery, who were fighting to some extent, it differs from thinker to thinker, who were fighting for racial equality, social equality. And I know that there's a lot to talk about here, and I wish we had time to talk about each of these thinkers, each of these activists, Martí or Varela or Sacco or Céspedes, Agramonte. But I'm wondering, given the fact that uh, these thinkers, these 19th century intellectuals were not socialist, did not espouse socialism, to what extent we could say that Cuban socialism was a betrayal of, of Cuban revolutionary history? What I ultimately say is because obviously socialism is around at the time that these thinkers are writing. And so it, it was a possibility. It, it, Marxism was around. It was a possibility. It was a position they could have taken. And they don't. And indeed, there's Marti has an essay where he speaks about Karl Marx on the occasion of his of his death and says, this is a man who you know, is is important and admirable for defending the downtrodden, but his ideas aren't going to work for us because it's about class antagonism and hate, and we don't want divisions. We don't want to be divided by class. We don't want to be divided in any way because these divisions have been used by the Spanish to to defeat us and to keep us from gaining our independence. And we are not about hate. We are about love and unity. Uh, and so, so yes, you could say it's a betrayal. Uh, and other people I talk about who also suggest, uh, you know, are clearly critical of socialism and centralized power and a centrally planned economy. And so, yes, I would say that in, in, in a one is that they, what I argue in the book, is what the common thread is the dilemmas that they were dealing with, right? and that those carry through to the, the present. But I would also say that in fact, it's the fault of the leadership itself for attempting to find this continuity that leads them, it sets them up for this revolution betrayed argument. Now it's also the case that the other side and the other side is a very huge generalization, but critics of this um, also misread or read Marti selectively to show their support for Marti or these other people to show that they are in fact, you know, their particular movement is a continuation of the 19th century struggles for independence and Marti is a very eclectic thinker, as you know, and one can get a lot of different positions out of Marti, but I think it is fair to say that, that he is very clearly says he's not, and, and there is no attempt even on the part of the Cuban leadership and scholars who are officially recognized to turn Marti into a Marxist, although Fidel Castro tries to say, well, you know, he would have, he would have been a Marxist now, <laughs> and, and his ideas are in some ways in keeping with our, our project. 
But I also think in some ways it is that the Cuban leadership or those who attempt to find this, this direct continuity do set themselves up for a story of betrayal because of who they choose to emphasize as the precursors to Cuban socialist ideology. And so somebody who I have more recently read more of, and I, and I only mention him in the book, is somebody named Walterio Carbonell, who was an um, Afro-Cuban uh, Marxist intellectual who publishes a book in 19, I think it's 1961, called How, the, How National Culture Emerges, where he criticizes the Cuban leadership for what he says is a kind of bourgeois historiography, great men theory of history, where they only look to these white Creole um, planters for the earlier articulations of Cuban socialism as the roots of national culture instead of looking to Cuba's history of slave rebellion. And that this is, in fact, a more historical materialist approach um, to understanding the culture that emerges in Cuba that is a revolutionary culture. And it is, a, it is an African, Afro-Cuban culture that is, in fact, providing a greater foundation for Cuban socialism and therefore, right, true, truly free Cuban nation. What do you think is the strongest claim that could be made that Cuban socialism is the logical historical outcome of 19th century struggles and 19th century political thought in Cuba? Sorry, I'm thinking on it because I don't, I don't think that the legitimacy of Cuban socialist ideology or the existence of it is dependent upon it being the logical outcome. I don't think it's the logical outcome. I think there are a variety of possibilities. But I guess the strongest claim is that all of these thinkers were concerned with independence, with national autonomy, and that national autonomy required addressing various inequalities and divisions within Cuban society. And that one of the greatest divisions was economic, not purely economic, and that's part of the problem, but uh, was economic and therefore socialism became, yes, became uh, one way to kind of truly unite Cubans together and achieve independence and not just right uh, independence, but true independence. Independence, not just in name, but also in practice. But as we know, that's a very difficult thing to do if you're a small country. Catherine Gordy joins me. She teaches political science at San Francisco State University. She's the author of Living Ideology in Cuba, Socialism in Principle and Practice. We have a link to that book and to Catherine Gordy's faculty page at SFSU on our website, againstthegrain.org. I'm C.S. Song, and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. So, Kate, we have really scratched the surface of this book. We've chosen to discuss in depth the introduction and chapter one of uh, this tome, even though there's so much more in those two sections that we haven't had a chance to discuss. And I encourage listeners to get the book and uh, read more uh, detail about what we've talked about today. Uh, what else did you choose to include in this book? So the second chapter, which is on various discussions in the 60s about the role of culture, art, and the intellectual in the revolution, was one of the last chapters I, I wrote. And it was partly just to, one, show that even in these moments of closing or what was understood, what has been understood as a closing or a narrowing of debate, you had quite 
lively discussions about what does it mean to be an intellectual and a revolutionary in, in the context of revolution. The next chapter, which is about justifications for a turn to Soviet economic policy in the middle of the 70s, actually came about because it was what <laughs> I was given access to at the time I was doing my field work. Again, it was just sort of by reading that I became interested in the degree to which even in this moment of kind of supposed capitulation to pragmatic concerns and, and also by this time, Cuba is part of the Soviet trading bloc, which it joins in 1972. So it has become more um, concerned or responsive to, to Soviet requests, but also their economic reasons for, for finding a new economic model. But that even in this moment of sort of supposed pragmatism, there was an attempt for a continuity between the 1960s and the ideas of Che Guevara and, and the 1970s. But also that, again, it's the state, it's the press, it's the organ of the Communist Party. It is not investigative journalism in the way that we think about it. It is not free press in the way we think about it. And yet I was struck by the degree to which there was an attempt to explain this economic policy, not just in terms of the nuts and bolts, but also in terms of how was it socialist. Uh, and the next chapter is on a think tank. It was a, a research institute in Cuba that again, was an organ of the Communist Party that responds to a call made by Raul Castro during the special period for the country to talk and address the challenges being faced at the time. And this particular research institute, the Centro Estudio Sobre America, the, um, decides to take that seriously and produces a whole number of studies and um, a journal from a left perspective, really uh, calling into question some of the decisions, not explicitly though, but trying to really rethink how can we make, how can we make socialism work and how can we fix socialism? Um, now, ultimately they are brought in by the central committee and, and accused of straying too far from the position of the government and for traveling too much and publishing abroad. And so the chapter is about their defense and how these intellectuals in Cuba who, who identified as, as socialists, who identified as revolutionaries, defended themselves on the basis of what they felt to be the role of a revolutionary intellectual rather than reverting to a defense of freedom of speech or something like that in, in and of itself. And then the final chapter is about this apparent contradiction that we see in the 90s. First, because of the material conditions in which people are living after the uh, termination of the Soviet trading block upon which Cuba was almost entirely dependent for all trade. Um, and so things really go into economic freefall. And so people's material conditions are, are very bad. And then there is a resistance to various reforms because they don't want to abandon socialism and they don't want to allow tourism in and they don't want to go back. And then a kind of slow uh, introduction of various uh, reforms like the legalization of the dollar, allowing for self-employment, allowing for foreign investment, allowing for farmers markets, um, a whole bunch of reforms, which then also force the Cuban leadership to have to explain this process. And so the chapter is about how one could just presume that this is the sign of the failure of Cuban socialist ideology, Whereas I say that, in fact, it is not, it is less the failure of Cuban socialist ideology, since many of the people uh, on the ground uh, criticizing 
these economic policies and the situation in Cuba were criticizing them on the basis of their failure to live up to principles of Cuban socialism and that the problem was uh, more that the, the Cuban government refused to kind of acknowledge that it was not the owner, only source of Cuban socialism, both as an ideology and in terms of practice. And then I wrap up the book kind of bringing it up a little bit closer to the present since I started my research in, you know, I went to Cuba the first first time in 1996 and then was going, lived there for a couple of years and then I, I go almost every year. Um, and so the last chapter attempts to bring things up a little bit more to 2015, at which point uh, Raul Castro had taken over and these market reforms had been extended even more. And there I argued somewhat critically that the Cuban state in opening up um, and allowing more uh, self-employment, but not a corresponding opening of the public sphere is in fact indirectly promoting a sort of liberal understanding of the of civil society as the place of the market, whereas it should be a place of uh, political participation. And that is the, the end of the book. And of course, a lot has happened since then in Cuba in terms of um, the effects of COVID, the effects, uh, inflationary effects, and a recent popular protest. The book is Living Ideology in Cuba, Socialism and Principle in Practice. The author is my guest, Catherine Gordy. She is a political scientist based at San Francisco State University. Uh, thank you so much, Kate, for joining us today and for writing this book. Thank you. And this is CS, suggesting the important thing is not to stop questioning, and we hope you'll join us next time. Against the Grain is produced by Sasha Lilly and C.S. Song. You can visit us online at againstthegrain.org, where you'll find on-demand and downloadable audio, resources, and more. You can check us out on Facebook at Against the Grain Radio, and you can follow us on Twitter at Radio Against. <laughs>